the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. I'm uh, just here pondering the prospect of my voice coming out of your smart speaker at home. See, for years I tried to say there was hope. (laughs) If I don't say anything smart, at least I can come out of a smart speaker, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, let's not go there. I can hear the snickering and snide remarks already. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Wednesday, May 27th edition of Lifeline and pretty jam-packed program. So let's get uh, right down to cases, shall we? As you know, we have slowly seen states across the U.S. begin to open again, some reopening and already claiming victory over the coronavirus. But perhaps the real consequences and whether or not we've made right choices or wrong choices won't be clear for weeks. The most universal experience of the coronavirus pandemic in America might not be a sense of fear or anxiety, but maybe for many of us, a profound confusion over exactly what's going on. Now, to be sure, conditions are improving in some of the country's major cities, yet outbreaks continue to grow in others, as well as in prisons and rural areas, especially those home to large meatpacking plants. As some states have begun to partially lift the shelter-in-place orders, such as California, and allow businesses like restaurants and even hair salons to begin to open in some counties around our state, One particularly high-stakes point of confusion has emerged. When can you tell if a state's reopening guidelines are keeping infection numbers down, and how long do you have to wait before you're sure? These are tough questions to be certain, and uh, to get some insight and answers, we're joined now by a very special guest, Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Dr. Orient has been a frequent guest since the outbreak of the pandemic, and we have looked to her for guidance and insight information, and most importantly, to cut through a lot of the noise and the confusion out there. And Dr. Orient, always a delight to have you on the program with us. And I guess this is um, kind of the overarching question, even as we watched a lot of people sort of dispense with social distancing and guidelines for face masks and things of that sort, and just get out and enjoy the California sunshine over Labor Day weekend, or Memorial Day weekend, rather, I guess as we're beginning to reopen now, the big lingering question is, how long before we learn whether or not this was a mistake? Well, we have no evidence that these masks and the social distancing had any effect in the first place. There are reasons to think, well, maybe they did, but what good does it do to socially distance on the beach when the sunlight is killing off the virus, if there is any, and when most of the deaths are occurring in nursing homes with people who have been shut out from the world 
for quite a long time. They were really far, far outside the stream of regular commerce. So a lot of the things that we have imposed on people have crushed the economy, have caused peer, fear and panic, and a lot of irrational behavior, and a lot of snitching on neighbors. Um, but for all we know, they've done no good whatsoever, because they just don't affect the main places where the uh, fatal diseases are occurring. And to be sure, we've seen the overwhelming number of um, not only cases of infection, but certainly loss of life amongst the elderly community, amongst those specifically in rest homes where this seems to just sort of spread like wildfire. And is that because we have sort of a combination of a couple of things going on here, doctor, uh, both close quarters as well as people that are in a, um, a category that may have um, not only tired immune systems, and I don't mean that uh, belittling at all. We just know that the older we get, the ability of our body to to respond to infectious diseases uh, it begins to wane over time. But along with that, I suppose, pre-existing conditions, all of these sort of almost conspire in a sense, don't they? Well, I think all of those things. And then we have caregivers who may go from one place to another. We have governors who have actually decreed that patients who were infected with COVID-19 are sent back to the nursing home where they can infect other people. And we have, we have really put the kibosh on things that might shore up the immune system, like you're not even allowed to talk about high-dose vitamin D or vitamin C because the WHO doesn't approve of it, so you can't post things on, on uh, social media to that effect. Uh, the governors and state pharmacy boards and so on are not allowing the use of prophylactic hydroxychloroquine in nursing home patients, which it, it appears to be extremely likely prevents people from getting very sick. And, and so why on earth would you be discouraging or just outright forbidding the use of a medicine that's safer than any vaccine has ever been proposed? It has been given over 60 years to 100 million people, hundreds of millions of people, with uh, very rare adverse consequences. Uh, why should we be not allowing doctors to prescribe this and patients to take it? And, you know, the curiosity there is that in the cases where we've seen adverse effects, it is simply because people have self-medicated. And I would suspect that, you know, certainly any drug up to and including aspirin can have uh, negative impacts if, if it's taken, um, you know, out of the context of what would be, you know, a recommended dosage, doctor prescriptions um, in, in the cases of other medicans, medications. So if you're looking at doctor prescribed, doctor controlled, doctor supervised medication, um, and, and there have been some cases that have demonstrated, some studies rather, that have demonstrated uh, the prophylactic benefits of it, you, you have to wonder why such uh, sort of hit and miss disjointed response to so many aspects of dealing with and this and I and I think doctor most certainly for general public physicians like yourself that at least have the experience and the knowledge and kind of you know can understand the difference between the falsehood uh, versus the truth uh, for the rest of us we're kind of at mercy here and there is so much conflicting 
confusing data that's out there. We've seen, for example, this disjointed response between public officials and they're they're publicly sparring with one another over the facts as if there's multiple sets of facts here and from a from a general public standpoint uh this is not only very confusing but maybe the most frustrating part of the covid-19 pandemic it's very confusing now hydroxychloroquine is safer than most drugs that are available over the counter it's safer than aspirin safer than tylenol safer than benadryl a whole lot safer than plan b and yet, as even doctors are not allowed to prescribe it. Now, in patients who are, who are deathly ill in intensive care units, there have been cardiac arrhythmias reported in patients who are given uh, hydroxychloroquine. Well, there are cardiac arrhythmias in people who are just sick with coronavirus because it infects the heart. And we don't know how serious those arrhythmias are. And now we're being warned, well, don't take this in my hand hurt your heart. Unless, of course, you're taking it for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or malaria, don't worry about your heart in those cases. Well, I mean, a healthy person taking this to prevent COVID, why should he be worried and these other people not worried? In fact, in India, they used to put chloroquine in salt. It was so safe to try to help prevent malaria. And the drug has been available over the counter for many, many years in many countries. I want to ask a question that, that may seem slightly conspiratorial, and I don't mean for it to be, but it could potentially kind of be considered from that from that arena. Um, but I'm smart enough to know that there's also oftentimes in matters of major public health import um, where there's a weighing in of, uh, shall we say, um, individuals or organizations that have a vested interest and so I, I suppose that uh, it, it's a question that needs to be asked as, as uh, potentially, you know, again, a, a tinfoil hat sounding as it may be. And that is, is there, is there any thing to be had here in terms of a benefit of major pharmaceutical companies or others that have a vested interest in not allowing the use of um, hydroxychloroquine, given the fact that, as you point out, it's prescribed to tens of hundreds of thousands of lupus patients every day. Well, it's not a tinfoil hat-wearing thing to follow the money. That there, if there are financial conflicts of interest, they need to be disclosed. And with Gilead Pharmaceuticals has got this new drug that they hope to make billions of dollars on, remdesivir, which is has almost certainly has many more toxic side effects. It is maybe $1,000 a dose instead of, of, of 30 cents or something like that. And it's had very, very limited testing for either safety or efficacy. And some mm. of the people who have stock in Gilead are among those who are discouraging the use of, of this potential competitor. And then the vaccine manufacturers also have a conflict of interest and there are all kinds of people in medical associations in federal agencies that may have a revolving door with these big pharmaceutical companies and it's it's not speculation it's not a conspiracy theory as to whether these people have conflicts of interest we know that they do so it really comes down to the old adage follow the money exactly 
And I read an interesting article day before yesterday, uh, speak, speaking specifically to uh, the work that they've been doing in relationship to uh, Rendezvous and its potential um, impact on COVID-19. And uh, the article went on to say that while the, um, the company that manufactures it um, and has been developing it over this time um, has benefited greatly from grants from the federal government tax benefits from the federal government, meaning you and me, at the end of the day, if and once this is approved uh, for treatment of COVID-19, um, we, the public, who helped to provide the financial resources to develop this drug in the first place, will have no say-so whatsoever over the amount of money that they will be able to charge each pill. That's a little bit disquieting, too. Well, it, it certainly is. And the, the the evidence on this has been really disappointing. They even changed the primary outcome of the study. They did away with mortality as the primary endpoint. And the only thing they can say, the most exciting thing they can say, is maybe you'll get out of the ICU in 11 days instead of 15. But yeah. I would like to, so to if I take it now, I, I'm not going to end up in the hospital. And you can't. Yeah, you're going to buy. That's absolutely not suitable for that. You're going to buy me three or four days of, of uh, time spent in in a, in a ICU unit, which, you know, I, I guess all things being equal is is uh, probably a better proposition. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, what cost? And therein lies, of course, uh, the question that is yet to really be fully answered. With us today is a very special guest. Always privileged to have Dr. Jane Orient with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons where she's been director since 1989. She is also president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness and is in private practice in uh, Tucson, Arizona. We'll take a brief time. I'll come back to more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Orient as we ponder through this Wednesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. A look at traffic for you right now. 518 on the clock. Here's the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation. Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, is with us today. We're talking about the slow reopening of America and um, how soon it will be before we can really fully ascertain the totality of the impact and our response to COVID-19. You know, this is not like... You've painted the room, and now you want to check and see if the paint is dry. If you touch it before it's fully dry, you'll know it immediately. Your fingers will be tacky. There's evidence on your fingertips. But the lag time with this, between feeling sick and seeking treatment, or feeling sick and uh, how soon prior to that that you had been exposed and then exposed to others, that what's, is what makes this so very complicated. And I guess the other issue here, too, Doctor, and we touched on this prior to the break, that sense of the, the disjointed response that we've seen from public officials that fight with each other over uh, facts and, and directives and so forth. And then when you add that to a lot of the confusing data, uh, for example, Virginia here recently uh, it, it kind of came under fire because they briefly combined statistics for active infections along with people that had gone in for a test, never contracted 
COVID-19, never had any symptoms. They were completely asymptomatic, but they tested positive for antibodies. And for a time, they were lumping those statistics together, making the numbers in Virginia seem significantly higher than they actually were. And I, I guess part of the problem is uh, with the federal government saying we're going to leave it up to the states, and now you've got 50 sets of people, 50 groups of people that are all exercising different opinions, different approaches to the same problem. Don't you wind up with 50 different sets of results ultimately? There are so many confusing things. For one thing, the diagnosis. We know that a lot of morticians have complained that the thing on the death certificate is COVID-19, even if it seemed pretty obvious that the patient died of something else. Maybe the patient died with COVID-19 rather than because of COVID-19, or maybe there wasn't even confirmation of the diagnosis in any way. It was just perhaps suspected. And I think in one state, I think Pennsylvania, they had to, they had to revise their statistics because they had so many attributed to COVID-19 inappropriately. So, and, and see, this is and this is frustrating. Now, I mean, a, a, a personal notation here: when my father passed away in his sleep five years ago, January, I was shocked. When a month later, I uh, I got my hands on the death certificate for some insurance reasons, and saw that his physician put down that he had died from Alzheimer's, when in fact every indication seemed to be that he simply had a heart mild heart attack and passed in his sleep. My father was never officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I understand that you really can't even do or, or, or give a accurate um, diagnosis of Alzheimer's until or unless there is an autopsy, which was not performed. So you look at that and say, okay, did you die from COVID-19 or with COVID-19, but from something else. And, and that's, that's again, what makes a lot of the, the ability of the public to trust these numbers so distrustful. Well, death certificates are notoriously unreliable. And if you really want to know what a person died of, you say you have to do an autopsy, even if you think you know it all before they die. But with tens of thousands of people dying in this epidemic, we're doing very, very few autopsies, and it's very important to know just how exactly does COVID-19 kill you, if it does, as long as, well, did you have something else that probably tipped you over, there's something else that you really died of, and COVID may have tipped you over the edge. The other thing you don't know is how many people really are infectious or even have the disease because the tests are so unreliable. They're false positives, they're false negatives, a lot of the tests have had to be withdrawn because they were so inaccurate. And then there's the antibody testing. It means that you've recovered from it. You are immune. This should be good news, but you shouldn't be added to the list of active cases. And, of course, the more tests you do, the more positives you're going to find. So it doesn't mean that more people are getting infected than were before. It's just that you're finding out about it. Let me, this is going to be a, a challenging question here, and, and I apologize in, in advance for it, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, based on what we know so far, to the degree to which we know it, um, looking at the pace of how we're opening things up again 
and we go every from everywhere from the gambit of you know the worst part is behind us to the worst part is yet ahead and it could be a disastrous um uh, fall season uh, combined with uh, things like the annual flu things of you know uh, infections of that sort viruses of that sort so i'm i'm wondering ultimately what are we going to base success on and who's going to determine that it's gotten to be such a political question and it, the reaction to this has been so much different from what we've had from past epidemics, even though it has turned out contrary to the original wildly erroneous computer models that this is much less severe than the Asian flu in 1958, the Hong Kong flu in 1968, when there was no panic. We didn't see the number of new cases every single day on the news. We did not have lockdowns. And even in, in the current situation with this epidemic, the countries that have had a lockdown and those that haven't have had virtually the same course of disease. It waxes and then it wanes, and pretty soon it will be much less. Will it have another wave? Well, who knows? But in England, they're having trouble evaluating their vaccine because there just aren't enough people getting sick to tell whether or not the vaccine made any difference. Mm. And then, of course, early on, we were warned that this could end up being anywhere between one to two million people dead, uh, which seems to be an awfully wildly wide gap between those two numbers, given how significant they are. Uh, and yet, of course, we haven't seen anywhere near that. Now, that's not to, by any means, diminish the very real reality of people that have lost their lives because of COVID-19. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, as we've often been warned, maybe the cure is going to be worse than the than the sickness. And um, g given the fact that this has been so overly politicized and is wrought with uh, public health officials making proclamations that are more really related to the economic impact of this than the health impact, and and uh, and conversely, so uh, so so-called experts in the economy that seem to know more about uh, the the medical side of this equation than anything else. Moving forward, uh, as you see, uh, doctor, Americans beginning to venture back out there. They're tired of being cooped up. They're tired of not making any money, not paying their bills. The weather is beginning to uh, move into uh, summer now here, um, kind of the Memorial Day weekend, the, the quote-unquote unofficial start to summer. Uh, what kind of a summer do you think we're going to have? Well, you're asking me to predict things. I know. I, it's, uh, it's terribly I think, unfair. But I think I, it depends <laughs> a lot on, on whether we continue with these stupid, tyrannical regulations that are keeping people apart for no good scientific reason. You know, if we really cared about preventing death, we would be doing everything we can to inform ourselves and to share our knowledge about things that seem to prevent that, like taking enough vitamin D. I mean, we'll be less vitamin D deficient as we get out in the sun more. But like in an Indonesian study, they found that very few people who had adequate vitamin D levels died. And nearly half of the people who had insufficient vitamin D levels died of COVID-19. But you're not even allowed to talk about that on social media. WHO doesn't want you to find out. Or we would be encouraging the use of hydroxychloroquine prophylactically 
to keep people out of the hospital, to keep them from getting seriously sick. We would be talking about how important adequate zinc levels are. Um, we would be talking about vitamin C. I mean, in Wuhan, China, they transported 50 tons of vitamin C in to treat patients in the hospital. There are clinical trials going on, but they're not, it's not being used in American hospitals, despite every reason and plus past experience to show that it might be very, very effective. Well, time, as you say, ultimately is going to be uh, the judge of, of all of this. And, uh, you know, in, in the meanwhile, I think we need to uh, do our best to be as safe as we possibly can. And, um, you know, the, the challenge of learning to cut through the din of what's political, what's medical, what's hysteria, and what's truth, um, therein, I guess, lies the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, uphill battle that, uh, that all of us uh, are going to have to climb in the coming weeks and months. Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, we appreciate the time always. Information available, by the way, online. Um, regarding her work with the Doctors for Disaster Preparedness Organization at ddponline.org. That's ddponline.org. Dr. Jane Orient, thanks so much for the time. 5.33, let's get started off on traffic here, and we'll do so right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you are any sort of a um, significant shareholder and an interested one, I guess you really need to be doubly engaged here, then maybe you took note of the fact, perhaps even participated in the so-called virtual annual shareholder meetings that occurred today, incidentally, for both Twitter and um, Amazon, to uh, major uh, corporations there. And I, I, I mentioned this significant... Only because 50 years ago this year, a comment was made by Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman, who uh, had been a guest on this show several times before his passing. And he talked about corporate America and um, the, the so-called uh, discussions of uh, social responsibilities and, and whatnot. And, uh, and he said at the time, that, quote, discussions of the social responsibilities of business, and I'm using my air quotes here, discussions of the social responsibilities of business are notable for their analytical looseness and lack of rigor. And ironically, 50 years later, not much has changed. We talk about it now with the publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. He's a financial economist, public speaker, and... Um, joins us now by phone, Jerry Boyer. Welcome. Good to have you with us again, Jerry. Uh, good to be with you again. Sorry you know, there's a lot of talk. Noise. No problem. A lot of talk about uh, being good corporate citizens and things of this sort, and certainly we've seen an uptick in recent years of even minority shareholders and people in organizations who will buy shares of a given company, not because they necessarily have any vested interest in the financial well-being or success of that company and the value that will bring to their shareholdings or dividends, but rather simply because they wish to meddle and influence that 
company or corporation, and uh, and some have done so uh, quite successfully, although I guess the success part <laughs> is arguable, but certainly have demonstrated a tremendous degree to steer and influence decisions made by corporations, not based on what's necessarily best for the health and well-being financially of a company or its shareholders, but rather oftentimes simply along ideological lines for which there is no perhaps right or wrong. It's just who seems to have the microphone at the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think they have been, um, as you suggest, only successful in the sense that they've had a lot of influence, not in the sense that that, uh, that their proposals have actually done any good for the shareholders or arguably for society in general. Um, but ESG activists and left-wing activists have done a really effective job of steering corporate boardrooms to the point where you've got major corporations who are saying, oh, we, we're not going to do business in Tennessee if you pass this bill that says that boys can't wrestle in the girls' wrestling team, or we're not going to do business in Georgia if you pass a heartbeat bill, um, or we're not going to look at, we're not going to protect, say, viewpoint diversity. We, we, yeah, we're good on race diversity, and we're good on gender diversity, and we're good on gender identity diversity, and sexual orientation diversity. So you can be you can be a member of any minority in our company, except to be a conservative. We're not going to protect for that. So they've really steered things um, quite effectively. It hasn't been good for the companies, I don't think. I don't think it's good for society because I don't think identity politics are good for society. They balkanize and they harm us. But they've been effective in the use of this tiny minority has been hyper-involved in corporate politics. And the conservative majority has been whatever is the opposite of hyper-involved, you know, acquiescing, uninvolved. Um, um, un, uh, you know, uninvolved with and and really slu- you know sloughing off our responsibility, and we have underperformed in terms of our influence in the boardroom. And you know, the irony is that uh, this goes well beyond things like wishing to influence who was seated on a board of directors, for example, which I always thought that was a choice made by the shareholders. So if you wish to change the makeup of the board of directors, run for a seat and hope to get elected. That's kind of the way <laughs> that's kind of the way the, the politics in the United States work. So why not um, in the same democratic fashion when it comes to uh, who sits on a board of directors? But beyond that, it, this goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. Witness, for example, Amazon. Um, now, as much as people love to take pot shots at Amazon, um, I find it ironic how many of us have um, have been thanking God for the existence of Amazon over the course of uh, two and a half months of uh, shelter in place and quarantine. We've had to rely on them for everything from getting us office supplies because we're working from home to delivering meals to our door. But we've seen, for example, people wishing to hijack even one of their uh, their sort of um, you know uh, community good neighbor policies where they created a program a number of years ago the smile program that uh, takes a pro- portion of their uh, proceeds their profits and benefits nonprofit organizations and um, there have been some that have uh, I, I don't know am i using the incorrect word jerry when i say hijacked uh, programs like that where they've come in for example and have 
put certain people on the you're not allowed list, even though they're um, a fully legitimate 501c3 with uh, nothing amiss in their financials. They do good work, et cetera, et cetera. But suddenly they literally have been blacklisted, not based on what they do or don't do, but based on simple ideological lines. Yes, um, well, they, they, those programs have been hijacked, and then conservative organizations have been thrown out of the plane. Um, they, you know, you're not eligible. I'm, I, I use Amazon, and we have the Smile program. Smile program's great. Uh, when you when you buy something, a little bit of money goes to the charity of your choice. And it used to be that it was just charity of your choice. It had to be a bona fide charity. Um, but the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, was tapped. And they used their hate group um, list, which everyone knows is very partisan, very ideological. Um, and so if you've been identified as a hate group, then you can't be in the SMILE program as a recipient. Um, so, for instance, Family Research Council, which is about as mainstream evangelical as you can get, right? I mean, this, this is not the KKK. This is just your standard issue, you know, ev- you know, evangelical Christian, moral conservative American, um, not on board with, say, same-sex marriage. Well, groups like that have been labeled as hate groups, uh, um, Alliance Defending Freedom. Another group was labeled as a hate group. Why? Because they defended the right of a cake baker to not be forced to bake a cake against his will for a gay wedding. This, this was not a guy who was in the KKK or something like that. It's just a cake baker who's a Christian, and he, ma- and he bakes cakes, and he says, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I can bake a cake, and you can put something on it, but I can't do an inscription that endorses something that I, do, that I can't endorse. And the Alliance Defending Freedom uh, defended him, won, all the way to the Supreme Court, won this case. Uh, and nevertheless, ADF and groups like Family Research Council are labeled hate groups. So if you're an Amazon customer and you want to be in the SMILE program and you want to give money to uh, some very left, wing group, you can give money to, um, uh, to Human Rights Council, no problem. But if you want to give money to Family Research Council through the SMILE program, you can't. So it's overriding customer choice in the interest of an ideological agenda. And of course, the irony there is that number one, I can't imagine if they were somehow trying to to protest this based on you know gross sums of money uh, heading in one direction or another. I can't imagine people lined up, uh, <clears throat> given the, the the broad number of nonprofit five hundred one c threes in this country, that one is going to be a, some exaggerated extent favored uh, over another. Moreover, as you point out, this is coming down purely on ideological lines, purely on basis of opinion not fact and you know listen we all have our own opinions like noses we all got one right uh, if there happens to be behavior going on with a particular company well very easy vote with your feet don't patronize them don't tell your friends to patronize them uh and 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 you can be done but that hasn't been the approach here in fact it's been far more insidious than that where as you suggest um and you know we're using amazon as an example there are many others out there as well um, where uh, special interest groups are essentially strong-arming corporations uh, to uh, to do not what's right for the community, but rather to do their their um, political bidding. We'll talk more about this. Uh, Jerry Boyer with us today. Jerry is the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. Information available, by the way, on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluent investor.com when we come back we'll talk more about the topic 
And most importantly, um, how conservatives can can respond and, and push back to some of this. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. 5.48 of the time, traffic now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Uh, with us today is the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily, Jerry Boyer. Jerry and I are talking about um, the, the influence that oftentimes pressure groups will bring to bear on um, corporations and boards of directors that essentially is promoting a political agenda and that largely over the legitimate concerns of shareholders and and of course when you look at this um you, you know you, you got to say wait a minute now you've got a small group of people that have learned how to effectively shame a corporation into and this is not necessarily better uh, corporate stewardship or uh, becoming a better quote unquote corporate citizen it has more to do with pushing ideological agendas, uh, as the heretofore mentioned um, situation concerning Amazon Smile program uh, and that of the undue influence of the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, and their so-called hate list that has very normal organizations on that list, but because they don't meet a certain ideological profile, have been deemed too hot to handle. And I have to wonder, as much as activists have learned how to, um, to essentially harness this, um, how do we go about reversing the trend? In other words, if the liberals can take this tact and be successful at it, why not conservatives? Yeah, why not? Um, because let's first talk about why we haven't been. We haven't been successful because we haven't tried. We have been almost completely absent from the battlefield on this. I talked recently to the people who run the largest proxy advisory service in the world. So this is the, the group that votes on all these proxies that are put out by activists. They, they don't have a concern. They, they haven't been talked to by conservatives. They don't have like a, they, they will have like a set of guidelines basically that says, okay, I, 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 sustainability is really important to me. So I'm telling you, um, always vote for sustainability issues, you know, as, a, as an instruction. You can kind of like give them instructions in advance. They have four different liberal ones. They have no conservative one, and no conservative has asked for one. Um, conservatives have simply been completely MIA in this battle. We prefer to kind of complain about it, maybe to sin screen those stocks out. Well, Amazon has a gay pride day, so we're not going to invest in them or whatever rather than to be aggressively engaged. So groups that represent maybe 1% or 2% of the population have completely dominated this conversation. Evangelical Christians are probably 30 40% of the population. Christians in general, a clear majority of the population, we don't show up. We don't vote our proxies. We don't even know we can vote our proxies. It's like every year there's an election in a red state because investors are more conservative than the population in general, and every year the liberals win because every year the conservatives didn't know there was an election going on and didn't vote. It's just tragic in my opinion. 
So essentially what's happening is that they're, 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 they're responding to the liberal agenda because that's the only group that they're hearing from. And some of these people can be pretty aggressive. I was reading here uh, today with regard to some of the comments um, at the Amazon meeting, uh, not least of which, of course, focusing on uh, worker rights, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but uh, touching on the issue of climate change and insisting that um, Jeff Bezos commit to a specific date when Amazon will have a so-called zero carbon footprint. Now, for an organization <laughs> that, that delivers that, packages to homes to that, have a zero Exactly. Footprint. Delivers packages along with post and everything else. Very effective in that regards. Keeps me off the streets having to go to 10 stores looking for what I need. Manages to, to have a significantly smaller footprint in terms of, of the amount of square footage that they occupy for the amount of goods and services that they deliver. And then to say, you need to be at zero <laughs> zero carbon uh, emissions by a specific date. I mean, how ludicrous does it get? Just invent a Star Trek transporter or something, I, I guess. I mean, yeah. how in the world do you deliver <laughs> things without, you know, magic? Um, but in their worldview, they don't think about that because it's all about virtue signaling or shaming, right? So you don't have to, they can engage in magical thinking. They don't have to think about how the world works. I mean, these, are, these activists show up at oil companies and demand that oil companies sign the, the Paris Accords. The Paris Accords are for governments. They're not for companies anyway. How in the world could an oil company you know, sign something like that? First of all, they can't, they can't sign a treaty. But second of all, they would essentially just be putting themselves out of business. Um, and, I mean, the oil companies fight back a little bit on this, but what's happened is for a lot of these companies, when it comes to morality issues, sexual identity issues, uh, abortion, they just give in rather than fight. But one of the reasons they give in rather than fight is they only have one side to give in to. They can end the pain of dealing with activists by simply saying, okay, whatever you want, we'll crowd, we'll sign it. It doesn't have to do with our fundamental business, sure. Um, but, again, we don't show up. We don't, we're not activists. We're living our lives. We don't talk to our financial advisor and say, by the way, is Amazon my portfolio? Yeah, Amazon's your portfolio. Oh, well, what about this vote that's coming up? Um, where Amazon called Family Research Council a hate group. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Uh, what? What are we going to do? Yeah, you're my advisor. What are we going to do about that? I don't want to vote for that because there's a pretty good chance that if, you're, if you own Amazon through a mutual fund company, they're using an outside proxy service, and they voted probably on your behalf to continue the policy of calling Christian groups hate groups. And you don't even know that happened. You're just, you just have it in your 401k, and you're hoping for a retirement someday. So we have to really start asking questions. If you own these companies, call them. You have the right to. Get on their website. Call your financial advisor if you have an advisor. If the advisor doesn't know what they're talking about, have your advisor call me. I'll tell them how to do it <laughs> for free. I won't charge them or anything. How they can start to weigh in here, because it, I, we can... We've got to stop complaining about a process that goes against us when we didn't even try to have input into it. We've got to start yeah. becoming active in this. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to complain because we lost the game when you never showed up in the first place. Uh, you kind of need to show up. And, you know, I would suspect that a lot of people, Jerry, eavesdropping on this conversation right now, uh, get annually 
Envelopes in the mail, if they've got an IRA, 401k, etc., they get envelopes in the mail that includes their proxy vote, that includes an opportunity to vote for the boards of directors, that gives them a chance to even show up to the board of directors meeting. Don't bother to do it. And so at the end of the day, as Jerry Bauer is suggesting, squeaky wheel gets the oil. Are we going to learn to squeak or just complain that we lost the game when we never showed up? We appreciate the time and the insights. Jerry Boyer, again, financial expert, frequent speaker of business conferences, and, of course, publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. You can read uh, Jerry's musings, by the way, on this particular topic, how conservatives can combat woke shareholders in the most recent online edition of National Review. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you some traffic here, and we'll do that right quick as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center.